Hey, and welcome back into the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. I'm Scott Agnes. Coming up on this episode, you'll hear from Adam Silver. I talked exclusively with him this week at the Women's Final Four. Adam Silver was at the championship game sitting with NCAA President Mark Ebert. It was halftime. No one was with them, so I said, hey, I'm going to go talk to him. You'll hear his comments about Indy potentially getting an NBA All-Star game. Also, Matt Dollinger, NBA editor of SI.com, will join me. He's an Indiana guy, attended IU, still follows the Pacers oh so closely, but also has a good grasp of the rest of the league as the regular season winds down. Pacers have just four games left on their schedule. Friday at Toronto, Sunday versus Brooklyn. That's also the last hickory night for the Pacers, and they'll celebrate all the IHSA championship winners at halftime. Then Tuesday, the Knicks. Wednesday, they wrap up the regular season on the road up in Milwaukee coming up on Wednesday. Pacers need to win at least two of those games to control their future. Win two, and they are in the playoffs because right now at the standings, they're 42-36. and 36. With 42 wins, they're insured of a winning record for the fourth time in five years. Currently, they're a half game ahead of Detroit in seventh. Chicago is three games back on the Pacers. A combination of Pacers wins and Bulls losses ultimately clinch a playoff spot there for the Pacers. They will make the playoffs. There's no doubt about that, I don't think, at this point, unless they really screw up here down the stretch. Here are a couple of notes that I found that I think you would be interested in as they relate to the Pacers. Tim Duncan, next time he plays a game, he will pass Reggie Miller for second place all-time in most games with one team. John Stockton, of course, is atop that list with 1,504 games. and Currently tied in second, Reggie Miller and Tim Duncan, 1,389 games. Also of note... Paul George, in his first full season back from that serious injury. This is a storyline that I think has gotten lost in the shuffle here, especially late in the season, but really all season long. Remember, Paul George is in his first full season back from that serious leg injury. He's scoring about 23% of the Pacers' points. On the year, he has 1,826 And if he continues at the pace of scoring over 23 per game, then he'll finish at least in third all-time by a pacer for points in a single season. Billy Knight tops that list 2,075 back in 1976-77. And then Reggie Miller in the 89-90 season, he recorded 2,016 points. As you heard on the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast a couple episodes ago, Pacer Sports Entertainment franchise in the city of Indianapolis is intrigued and seriously looking into hosting an NBA All-Star game. I wouldn't call it inevitable that they'll put in a bid, but it certainly is trending that way. A prime example was Tuesday night at Bankers Life Fieldhouse before the NCAA women's title game. Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, dined with two Pacers execs. Pacer Sports and Entertainment president Rick Fusen, who was on that podcast a couple episodes ago, and Pacers Vice Chairman Jim Morris. At halftime of that game between UConn and Syracuse, I had a chance to talk with Commissioner Silver about why he was in town and how he and the league would feel about Indy getting an all-star game. For all purpose of the, the visit, is it related to Pacers at all, or is it purely... No, I, this visit's not related to the Pacers. I'm related to the Fever, in a way, here to support women's basketball. I'm here with Lisa Borders, who is our new president of the WMEA, and so we're here to do a little bit of scouting, yeah. watch a great game, um, also 
support Gino Oriema, who is our USA basketball coach as well, and you know, and just have an opportunity to, to see a great, you know, championship. Pacers have made it clear that they're kind of after an all-star at this point. They haven't done anything final that I know of, at least. But what would you think about Indianapolis? You're seeing what we, we can do right here about them ultimately hosting an all-star perhaps in two, three years. You know, I, I, I've said it before. Um, Indianapolis was built to host big events, and, and, and we'd love to come back here for all-star. Have you had any recent discussions or anything with Herb Simon or, or um, uh, uh, Larry or anything? Jim Morris... Rick Fusen and I chatted about it over dinner tonight before the game. Yeah. Wait. So they're, you know, it's, it's, um, they've let it be known how interested they are, and they know how the process works in terms of submitting a formal bid. And so um, the ball's in their court, but, uh, you know, they know we'd love to be here. Very interesting comments there. My thanks to Adam Silver for being approachable and willing to take a couple of minutes to talk with me and shed light on the issue and potential for Indy to host an all-star game. Now, 2017 and 2018 are already locked up. 2017 in Charlotte, 2018 recently awarded to Los Angeles. It's an ongoing process. We don't exactly know the time frame for when the bids have to be put in or when a decision will be made. But the first one that the Pacers could go after is 2019. And Rick Fusen said very likely that they will either 2019 or 2020. If you haven't subscribed to the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast already, please do so on iTunes. Just click the subscribe button and every time a new episode is posted, you'll probably be the first one to learn about it. and it would be a big help if you took one minute to leave a review on itunes to get the profile of this podcast up there and tell your friends up next here i'm talking with sports illustrated's nba editor matt dollinger he's been working for sports illustrated for six years now two of which in his current role will hit on several subjects including his passion for the Pacers and and following the team, how far he thinks they could go in the postseason, other things around the league like what the Spurs are doing, chasing the all-time regular season wins record, why the Spurs are a big-time threat, and Kobe entering his final week in the NBA. Take a listen. My conversation with Matt Dollinger of SI.com. I don't think we have met at this point. I remember he did speak to one of my classes back at IU, but we did attend IU together. I think he's a couple years older, but glad to finally have him on the show. How are you doing, Matt? Hey, I'm doing well. I uh, I feel dated having spoken to your to your class. That makes me feel a little old. But... Yeah, I think it was a Doc Sales class. You remember oh, that? Well, he, he'd let anybody speak. <laughs> <laughs> and the stories uh, were notorious, but you never knew if they were true. That's right. <laughs> well, I wanted to have you on the show, number one, to talk just NBA in general. You also attended the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference and also uh, follow the Pacers very closely. So I thought we'd hit on all of those subjects. But first, I want to hit on your exact role with Sports Illustrated as the NBA editor. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, been at SI for almost six years now and I've uh, been the NBA editor for the last two. Uh, so, you know, I kind of was a equal parts college basketball and NBA while I was at IU and uh, I've sort of shifted over completely to the pro slash dark side now and uh, <laughs> you know it's it's fun it was fun watching the Hoosiers make their sweet 16 run this year and kind of get the interest reignited but these days all NBA everything I've followed the Pacers since I was a little kid back when my dad and I would 
drive up to uh, Market Square Arena and Conseco Fieldhouse and uh, sit in $10 seats. So uh, these days when I go back, Thankfully, the the press row has slightly better seating, so I'm no longer all the way up there. And one thing covering the NBA entirely now is you can still wear that fandom hat a little bit while watching the Hoosiers. Yeah, I think it's a it's a little more understood now that uh, <laughs> right. I think J D Campbell still thinks I'm the enemy, so I I think that they haven't realized that uh, I now cheer for them. But yeah, it's kind of nice uh, being a little bit of a fan for a change and. Uh, rooting for a basketball team rather than having to keep a straight face the whole time. And if I recall right, you worked for the Colts for at least a season. Uh, I worked for the Colts for a year, the year they made uh, the Super Bowl run and lost to the Saints. So that was a pretty surreal season being an intern. Yeah, no, that's that's terrific. What's an average day like for you? I know, I know writing and journalism and especially covering the league, I mean, it's kind of just get your work done. Yeah, you know, uh, wake up pretty early, get in the office around 8 o'clock, and uh, since I get in pretty early, I'll I'll tend to miss some of the West Coast games sometimes, so I'll usually shoot up league pass and try and uh, watch, you know, either a full game if it's particularly noteworthy or the 15, 20-minute condensed versions and do a little catch-up there. And, uh, yeah, we've got a great writing staff, so I'll I'll spend a lot of the morning working up stories and editing, getting everything out, and the afternoon is kind of saved for – looking ahead or reacting to the news that's happening or doing video or podcasting, and uh, it's crazy. I mean, the NBA uh, schedule coming down this final week with Kobe's final game, the Warriors maybe winning 73 uh, on the same night next Wednesday. is just unbelievable, and then you get three days off before the playoffs start, so there's a lot of T's <laughs> to cross and I's to dot before we get there. Yeah, I don't mind typically being on East Coast time, but... Man, I, sometimes if you have a long day or something, staying yeah. up well past midnight, 1 a.m. for a Warriors game, that's tough. And they, the Warriors make you pay every time you go to they sleep. Do. Too, they so. do. They've, uh, they've really cut into it this year. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, a resurgence from the Eastern Conference next season. <laughs> Give us some more 7 o'clock games to note. And right now, Pacers, that's also an interesting storyline for at least people in our area, of course. Playing 7th or 8th spot, will it be Toronto, Cleveland, or will they even play well enough down the stretch to make the playoffs, although it is trending that way? Yeah, it is, uh, you know, it's gotten a little ugly for the Pacers down the stretch. They've won three in a row now, but not exactly inspired basketball. Luckily, neither are the Bulls or the Pistons right, really no. playing particularly well either, so <laughs> everyone's kind of limping in and uh, I mean, I think the seven seed is really pretty meaningful this year. I know the the Pacers just beat the, the LeBronless Cavaliers last night, but uh, a much favorable matchup against the Raptors and the Cavaliers. We'll touch on the Pacers in much uh, deeper fashion in just a minute. Let's start out with the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, an annual event that's put on up on the East Coast, and every NBA team at this point is represented there. Number one, is this something you had to ask to cover? Because I know I would immediately do so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was my third year going, and uh, the first year I proposed it to SI, and they're like, eh, we're not really that interested. So I ended up paying my own way and going up there because I wanted to check it out so bad. And uh, the last two years, you know, as analytics have kind of become more of a thing, uh, SI's come around too, luckily. But it, it's a really cool event. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's been some discussion in the last few years on whether it's kind of jumped the shark and, you know, you go there now, and it's a lot of war stories from old NBA players and less discussions of analytics and, like, what the latest trends are because uh, I think everyone plays, you know, the future and the uh, the most important stats pretty close to the vest. They're just 
isn't a lot of benefit of discussing, you know, groundbreaking uh, data out loud when, when, they're not, when you're not getting paid for it. So it's a really great gathering of the minds. And like you said, every NBA team is there. So uh, there's a lot of hallway discussions that are fun and everything. And, uh, you know, they, they include every sport, but NBA is definitely the marquee uh, event there. Yeah, you're right. Mark Cuban developing, say he's developing a couple things, spending millions on it. You think he's going to travel to this event? Hey, look what I found out. I've actually got this in the works. I'm happy to share it with the rest of the league if you'd like. No, that's not happening. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you almost you know, you know, almost have to wait a couple hours just to hear one little tidbit when either someone is a little overly candid or they just decide to throw you a bone. But a lot of the time people are speaking very vague to, to kind of keep their proprietary information uh, to them. <laughs> Matt, where do you stand on analytics in general when the NBA? I think it's a great tool, but I think sometimes it's overemphasized, or at least it feels like it's overemphasized, particularly in like Houston, for example. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting part to me is how much should it be utilized. And, uh, you know, I went into it three years ago, complete newbie, knowing absolutely nothing. Uh, you know, I, I'd wrote the uh, NBA power rankings for SI, so I'd spend a lot of time searching for interesting numbers every week on teams and players. And when you do the power rankings, you know, you're 20 weeks in. It's really hard to come up with something original about the Sacramento Kings when they've been out of the playoff playoff race for three weeks. DeMarcus so. Cousins just picked up his 16th technical. Still they angry, dropped to 29. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, that's kind of how I got into it was just I was looking for new things to write about and kind of incorporate uh, into my pieces. And, uh, you know, I think the NBA teams are the same kind of way. They realize this is something they should be incorporating. How much should they be doing it? And that is often the discussion that kind of leads uh, that where, where discussions kind of go with flow and where players or coaches will be talking about how much they used it or instances they did use it or didn't use it. And, it, you know, it's like an assistant coach that's that's really smart but has kind of some hot takes. Like, you can only listen <laughs> to him so much and yeah. you, you take the good with the bad. I think what's interesting, talked with Frank Vogel a lot with this. For instance, he's got a, a remote analytics guy based in New York and everything, but he's a guy, he'll fly in for, for a playoff series and that's where they'll really go over everything. But before each game, this guy gives him pages of analytics, both about his team, the upcoming matchup, and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm, my goal is to get a, a hold of one of those, even if it's a couple years old, just to have an idea of what kind of data he, he's absorbing. Yeah, I think it's the kind of thing that, you know, the Pacers probably use at this point of the year to figure out lineups. You know, I know they kind of just reshuffled their, their second unit and everything, and that could have been something that maybe where they looked at the numbers and they said, these guys play better or we shoot better from deep when we have these guys on the floor instead of this combo and something like that. I'm, I'm interested to see or, you know, hear more about, you know, what the Pacers have learned about Miles Turner in particular and how they've kind of used him differently throughout the years. So uh, I, I think it's a, it's a tool. It, it's, you know, any team that uses it complete, there isn't a team that just, you know, bases everything off analytics. Absolutely not. I don't think that would fly in the NBA players wouldn't go for it because they're the ones most reluctant, reluctant to it. You know, coaches and GMs, you might think of those guys as old school and they don't want to embrace this new wave, but players are still the ones most reluctant to kind of take analytics into factor because, you know, they, they're players. They're what they know what happens on the court. They don't want to listen to someone who's never been on it before. Yeah, and, and to, from the player's standpoint, I think their thought is, hey, roll out the ball and we'll just go play. We know what kind of offense and defense we want to run. We practiced all of the sets. We we're know what when we come together what we can do. And then if you try to throw in data, I think sometimes they're like, ah, let, let us just go play. 
Exactly. There's you. You can They're imagine basketball players, NBA personality. Some of those guys aren't taking that. One of the biggest areas in in analytics that intrigues me is the wearable technology. But it, it's kind of a cross between great data and too much data. Um, at least when it comes to the players' standpoints. I know the Pacers. A lot of them were kind of like a hockey puck on their chest during practices. It monitors a number of things, um, including energy and those types of things. I'd like to see it taken to that next level. The trouble is, and I've talked even with some Pacers staff behind the scenes, is, and they admit it, they understand, and it would have to come up in the CBA negotiations, is how much are the players willing to give? Because the, with the data, the teams could essentially know how much effort the guys are putting out, how much how much um, work they're putting into it. Are they getting sleep? Are they staying up on the road? And then that could hurt in contract negotiations. Absolutely, yeah. And this is something that's been going on for a few years, not just with wearable technology, but just the you know the biometrics that these different doctors and sports scientists are able to do on players' bodies. Like, you know, you look at points per game and you judge a guy's contract off that. What if you knew his heart rate? What if you knew his, like, oxygen capacity? What if you knew that his hip uh, was was likely to break down in the next three or four years. Like that, that is information on a whole new level that would impact all of these negotiations. And it is a little uh, troubling for players, I think, to have that out in the open because uh, you know a lot of the time it's not going to be oh we're going to give you an extra ten million because uh, it, it turns out you have better balance than we realize. <laughs> now that that's not going to happen. It's going yeah. to work against them, unfortunately, and it'll just kind of pop up new red flags. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see how much, if if at all, I'm sure it will, will come up in the next CBA negotiations. What was your favorite subject that was discussed at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference recently? Uh, you know, it, 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 the things to me that are sometimes interesting are, are the stuff that has nothing to do with analytics that are discussed there. I'm kind of amazed at the personalities this uh, this conference brings together every year. One of them that was my favorite was the negotiating panel, just because, you know, you think about it in everyday life, uh, being a negotiator is kind of a, a good skill to have, whether you're trying to get an upgrade in a hotel room or, you know, you're negotiating your next contract. Absolutely, so I, yeah. I kind of found that interesting, and they had really interesting people on there. They had uh, David Falk, who's one of the best agents ever, uh, Michael Yormack, who, who works for Rock Nation, and Daryl Morey from the Houston Rockets, and they kind of talked about who are the toughest negotiators they ever faced, and Michael Yormack said Jay-Z, and he, he didn't elaborate on that, but... Man, I'd love to know what kind of negotiator Jay-Z was. So uh, uh, some of the the discussions that break out, you could never anticipate. But the strange, you know, eclectic personalities they got on the stage together, sometimes things take a really interesting turn. And Matt wrote 50 notes, quotes, and anecdotes uh, from the Sloan Conference that you can read at SI.com. Yeah, Jay-Z, I'm having trouble visualizing him as a negotiator. I feel like he just walks in. I, think, I don't know. I just can't. I don't even know what I think. I think I'd lose. That's all I know. Is I'm not <laughs> winning that argument. <laughs> one thing I also <laughs> liked, you noted it on your article. I also heard it on a podcast. I forget which one it was, but Sue Bird. She talked about her gnat maneuver that I believe she learned from uh, Mike Tirico. Drink a cup of coffee, take a nap, 20, 30 minutes, no more, and you'll wake up without those sleeping effects. I have tried it once. My trouble is I have an awful time getting to sleep. So I felt like the coffee really kicked in by the time I got to sleep. Have you tried it? Uh, I've I've tried it before and uh, I haven't felt the effects really, but 
I thought it was a genius idea. I'm, I probably drink three cups of coffee a day. Uh, <laughs> I don't have any openings for naps, but if I did, I would definitely jump on that. And yeah, that stuck out. That made me a huge Sue Bird fan instantly. Let's talk now about the NBA in general and big topics. One of them, it's got a little exhausted to me over though. Although this last week, I'm going to try to enjoy it. Kobe Bryant, his last go around, mm-hmm. it has been exhausting to me. And mainly because it's not him. He's not the guy that comes out and hugs and shakes hands before every game. He's not the guy that smiles and talks with a, an opponent in the middle of a free throw. But what has it been like for you to kind of watch this season for Kobe, Matt? Yeah, it's been one really long, drawn-out farewell. Uh, and it is kind of crazy. I think there are only four games left. And you know that's probably on his mind every time he catches the ball at this point, thinking, I've only got so many more shots left. So many more opportunities, you know. I could tell that was the case the other night. I flipped him on right. in part to watch Roy Hibbert too, and and just, <laughs> it's so sad at this point. But De- it was late in the game. I can't remember which one, but D'Angelo Russell brought it up several times in a row, late game situation, and each time he would go into his shot, and Kobe would you could see in his demeanor, not just trying to read into it. He clearly was like, "Ball, let's go, give me it." And, and it was the game he scored twenty seven. I think it was. He's saying, "I'm hot." I ha- I only have so many more of these. Give it to me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, D'Angelo Russell is 20 years old. Kobe's like, you got a lifetime of shots. Let me get a few last ones in Respect there. Respect your elders, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm genuinely wondering if uh, the Lakers have something in store for his final game on Wednesday, if Kobe's going to take uh, like 60 or 70 <laughs> shots. I, I don't know. I mean, there, there, there could be a chance where they he really goes out swinging and just – goes for some sort of scoring mark or maybe tries to drop 51 last time. Uh, the Jazz are going to be trying to win that game, so it's going to be uh, competitive on their end. But I, I almost wonder if the Lakers might just go all out and give in to Kobe at this point. We talked about it earlier, the Eastern time, but next Wednesday at 10.30 p.m. Yeah. is Kobe's last game. I don't like that. And you, you better have League Pass queued up on your laptop because the Warriors will be going for win number 73 potentially at the exact same time. Ooh, good call. Yeah. Do you think at this point... With a couple games against the Grizzly, a couple games against the Spurs, that they'll get it. They need every one of them. I think they're going to get it. I, I do. I, I, I'm pretty stunned that uh, they're in this position, though, right now. I did think it was kind of you know, a foregone conclusion at this point. But you know, the Grizzlies are going to be trying in both those games. The Spurs, it's yet to be seen. You know, they've got an outside shot at home court advantage where uh, you know, they, they, they've kind of got to honor that just because they're unbeaten at home right now. They have to go for it. But Golden State's not going to... Tell that to Pop. Exactly they have right. to go for the home win record? I doubt he cares too much. No, he doesn't. But uh, when, you're, when you're unbeaten at home, you have to respect the fact that having home court advantage might be a good thing. But uh, I don't think Golden State's going to let up uh, their grasp of it. And uh, I, I've got a feeling the Warriors hold on these last four and pull it off. I thought for certain they would get it weeks ago, even a month or two ago. Now I'm just not so sure. I'm really not. Th- I don't think they will. It's gotten to the point where they've had these close finishes down the stretch, kind of like the Bulls did back in 96. They hadn't lost a home game, and now they've lost a couple of them. I just, I'm, I'm torn. I really think they're a team that gets up for the occasion, and I think uh, they've, they've kind of been caught blinking the last few times against the the Wolves. I mean, I watched that game twice, actually, and that game was in hand. I was stunned even the second time that they lost it. Uh, they they just really had, and I think they kind of let their guard down, and it went away. And I think these last four games, the pressure will be back on, and the Warriors have shown so many times this season that that's where they excel. So uh, I think they finished strong. 
I don't think they're going to sneak any rest in uh, for Curry and Co. Unfortunately, uh, but if they do, uh, all bets are off. How do you think this push for the record, playing hard so late, hmm. might impact them in the postseason? Will it? It's a good question, but I really am of the opinion that they should go for 73 and they should do whatever it takes. Um, I completely you know, agree on that front. I just think we might see a little after effects in the postseason. You know, I, I, I worry about overthinking, and the the reason I worry about overthinking is because I watched the Colts in such a similar situation so many times where, you know, they're, they're 13-0, and they're 14-0, and should they... What should they do week 16 and everything? And it seemed like the Colts always went for that super conservative approach. Bill freaking Pullian. It never paid <laughs> off. It never paid off. So I think you just keep the pedal down while, you, while, while you've got it going. And uh, I just don't think there's going to be that much added benefit from a little extra rest. Steph Curry sat out 20-plus fourth quarters this season. He's gotten some good rest this year. Those guys have, have done a really good job. Uh, throughout the year of kind of managing minutes, I, I think they should be okay. I'm not trying to overblow how Golden State, I mean, they are relatively young. These guys are playing at an elite level. But part of me also thinks this would wear on you. This The, the pressure from the oh, media yeah. there, the, the pressure from family, the pressure of social media, the pressure from your peers. I know their they're boys are, hey, man, you're you going to get this or not? I need the hookup, you know, that kind every, of thing. Every day, every day for the past, Four months. This has been the discussion, maybe even longer uh, since they started off the season. This has been. There has not been a media scrum, a press conference, a, a meal out where they have not had this brought up to them. So it is. You're right. It is mentally exhausting. And now, part of me wants to change my pick to San Antonio. Am I crazy for this? I. No, you're, you're I just. Not. I, I like uh, Popovich. I like the veteran group in San Antonio. They have gotten more rest. They are strong at home, and they've shown they can beat Golden State. Yeah, I mean, we are truly lucky this year. This is two historically good teams. This isn't your average San Antonio team. This might be the best Spurs team Popovich has ever coached. And that statement doesn't come lightly. That is really saying something. So I would not be the least surprised if the Spurs won. I wouldn't be the least surprised if they even have a notch they haven't hit yet this year. And Popovich has a few tricks up his sleeve. I've got to think that they have – another gear that they've yet to kind of hit this year. You follow the Pacers, so of course you follow Lance Stevenson. He's in Memphis and actually playing relatively decent. Last 10 games, 13 points, 4 assists. It's kind of a scary bunch of characters in Memphis. I'm not sure if it's a great situation. I don't think there's any way Memphis will pick up the team option of his $9 million owed next year if they want it. But I just want to see Lance in a good situation. That's what He, he needs a, a quiet low-key situation. That's not L.A. I thought right. Charlotte was fine in that situation. He, he just didn't mesh well with what Coach Clifford was trying to do. And also, I don't know that he got the support that he needed to be a successful player. No, he didn't. The, the, the last two teams he's been on have been bad fits for him. There's no doubt. He hasn't really been able to mesh with other guards. And it, it's honestly because he excels as, as the ball-dominant guard. If you want Lance Stevenson, you better be invested in him, and you better give him the ball, because he is no good as a complimentary player. I mean, there was a time when, when he was at the Pacers at his peak where, and this was a short period of time, though, he was probably one of the top 25 players in the NBA for, for a short stretch, where he was so good mm-hmm. on both ends, and this was his peak confidence, I would say, where uh, I really would have put him up there. And then he goes to Charlotte, and L.A., and he's asked to do less, and that did not work for him. You know, he's, 
He needs the ball in his hands. If you look at his time in Memphis so far, his usage rate is sky high compared to when he was with the Clippers and the Hornets. And it's all about getting him the ball and kind of letting him do his thing and letting him freestyle on the court because that's where he's at his best, innovating and making something out of nothing. And when you try and kind of peg him in as that number two or number three option, it really just does it goes south quickly for Lamb. And the reason, and one of the reasons it worked so well with the Pacers is George Hill didn't mind playing off right. the ball a little bit more. Now, I thought it got to an extreme where he was kind of just forgotten about, essentially. But Lance would handle the ball and then get into the offense, and the spacing was great, and that's why things worked so well. It, he hadn't seen that since he left. No, he hasn't, and you're... You're right about George Hill, too. I mean, there, there's a guy who, when he's engaged, he can be amazing. And he, when he looks for his own shot, he really becomes a different player. And when he kind of floats or defers, he's invisible. All right, enough about Lance. We don't need to take that much <laughs> further than that. Pacers, though, 42-36. and 36. They're insured of a winning season for the fourth time in five years. They got a win last night over Cleveland, though LeBron didn't play, nor did he show up till 30 minutes before the game and take the court until in the second quarter. That's beside the point. How confident are you that the Pacers can make any kind of noise in the postseason? I think we're going to see them finish about where we thought. I estimated about 45, 46 wins. They're going to come up a little short of that, but nothing, nothing to be upset about. They are who we thought they are right now. I don't see them getting out of the first round. I think that they won't be outclassed by Cleveland or Toronto. I think they'll put up a pretty good fight against both of them. But, uh, you know, I don't see them pulling off the upset and toppling either one. If they could somehow regain that chemistry they had really early in the season when the offense is on fire, they, they could steal some games and maybe push it to six or seven. But both Cleveland and Toronto, despite their flaws, are really complete teams compared to the Pacers and just have so much more depth that – uh, I think that the Pacers ultimately go out with a go out in the first round after a, a good but not great showing. One of my favorite notes about this Pacers team is that they're getting all their bigs and better production for about one point two million dollars cheaper this season than Roy Hibbert. It's it's amazing. We we haven't forgiven Roy Hibbert, have we? <laughs> We're still I, holding on to it. No, I and I I just feel bad for the guy, man. He just he's an only child. He got lost in playing so well and everyone building him up, and then when yeah. he fell down, it fell hard, and he hadn't been able to recover. I've rarely, if ever, seen a decline like it. Yeah, I, uh, Even at the beginning of this year, I would have predicted that he would have got it together and ended up getting a pretty good contract this summer, but it, it, has, it has been a mighty fall. I'm not sure what a guy like him would command at this point. Little more than the veteran minimum? Exactly. I mean, now that's the case. He's kind of have to uh, prove himself you, for a season. If you could do anything and you're seven foot two, you'd get paid this summer. So that that's really saying something. What was your thoughts when Larry Bird pulled the trigger on Monte Ellis? You know, I, I had a little bit of excitement for the Pacers because they rarely have had scorers who can score off the dribble, and he was kind of like the guy, maybe the the best score off the dribble or since Jalen Rose that the Pacers have had. So, you know, I thought he'd be able to initiate some offense. I thought getting the ball, you know, just having someone else besides George Hill really bring it up and kind of initiate things I thought would be interesting. But uh, to say they've over-relied on him would be an understatement. I, I cringe every time he touches the ball now when the shot clock is down or at the end of a half or a quarter. I know Frank Vogel's a smart guy. I know he's got more plays than he's shown, but it seems like the answer every time is just give it to Monte and get out of the way. And 
That doesn't work. And we talked about the analytics. The analytics cannot say give it to Monte for a fadeaway 20 feet out from the right wing. They just no, can't. It's not exactly. It's a super low percentage shot, <laughs> and uh, you know it, it might work once or twice. And he's got the ability to kind of bail you out if something goes wrong. But uh, Vogel should trust the rest of his team more. They they they, sh- they should be getting much better shots in these situations. My initial reaction was that it's a solid deal, eleven million each over the next four years. Mm-hmm. Although he's later in his career, it's a veteran presence, and it's a guy that. Come winning time, come late in the games, finally the Pacers might have a guy that can hit a clutch shot. Because we haven't seen that consistently from Paul George. We did it recently this week at New York, which was basically a game-winning shot. But we haven't seen it consistently from Paul over his career. I thought Monte would change that. Yeah, he's been really durable this year, which I'll I'll give him credit. You know, He's played, uh, I think, in every game. Him and and, Paul uh, have played in every single game. Playing every game, he's given them good minutes, but... It's clear that he is not the same player he once was. You know, I'm sure defenses are also keying in on keying in on him a little more than when he was in Dallas, and he's probably able to get some freer looks. So that certainly isn't helping anything either. But yeah, the all his shooting percentages are down, and uh, just hasn't been able to quite get it going in Indiana. Solomon Hill, meantime, is really playing well for what the Pacers need at this point, and it has me wondering if the Pacers kind of regret not picking up his option for next season because of. Uh, how much of the fabric of this Pacers team that he's become? He's really made a a strong case to be the starter. Even Lavoy Allen, who has a great sense of humor, you can barely get a real quote from him that's not funny. But I was talking to Solo yesterday, and Lavoy walking to the shower jokes. Hey, hey, Solo, tell him why you should be the starter. Tell him why you should be the starter. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, he was. You know, it's pretty crazy that he was the starter last year, and now is a bench warmer this year, and. And early on, he didn't even get off the bench, barely. He didn't even get off the bench, right. I, the one thing, you know, there's some pros and cons you can list for Larry Bird's time as, as GM of the Pacers. One thing he's done a great job of is eyeing young talent, though, and kind of having an eye in the draft and, and kind of getting these guys later as steals. And uh, if, if he's not high on Solomon Hill, uh, you know, that, that kind of says a lot to me. But you're right, when he gets on the floor, he's usually productive. It, it's kind of surprising that... Uh, you know, Vogel hasn't turned to him more this year. When you talk about Bird in the draft, he either hits really high or you just scratch your head a little bit, right? Yeah, right. I mean, Miles, <laughs> Miles Plumley, he goes. Given, I will say, it was late in the draft, we were all saying Draymond Green, give him a try. Because right there, late in the draft, there was nothing that jumped out to you, really, other than a Draymond Green, I thought, because he was a winner. That's what I was entirely going off of. This guy just he, seems to win. That's a guy I want on my team. I didn't know he, he was going to develop like he did. He was my favorite college basketball player of all time. I absolutely loved him in Michigan State. Uh, and he became a completely different NBA player, one I never could have predicted. I mean, even as one of his biggest fans, I, I never would have imagined he could become a player like this. No, not at all. No one did. I mean, a max contract guy at this point. Right. And I think he, they would say he's kind of the leader of that Warriors team now. Curry's obviously the best player, but it seems like, at least here in Indiana, that Draymond is the face, the voice of that bunch. Yeah, absolutely. He has been, and uh, that's been huge for their growth. I mean, as much as anyone, Draymond deserves credit there because he's made them the defensive unit that they've become, and you know they're not getting anywhere uh close to 73 wins without that guy in the east come playoffs anybody outside cleveland or toronto 
You know, a lot of people are kind of on the Miami Heat bandwagon of late. Uh, the Charlotte Hornets have also played pretty well down the stretch, but I, I just think that the Cavaliers become a different team in a seven-game series, and so do those other seven teams in the East where the Cleveland has a huge advantage, and that's LeBron. And when playoff basketball you know, slows down and becomes a half-court game on both ends, he is just the ultimate trump card. And I think Cleveland has enough enough depth where – they should be able to handle everyone in the East pretty handedly. See, I was going with the the thought initially that, yeah, the Pacers, I'd, I'd rather take Cleveland over Toronto. Mm-hmm. But then you really think about it and you're like, arguably the best player in the league, LeBron. No, right. you, you never want to face him. Even if they're the sixth seed and he's got a will him to wins, I do not want to face LeBron. I, I think, yeah, you're right, that the Pacers do want to face Toronto at this point, and you can't count out LeBron, but I will say it was refreshing last night when the Cleveland Cavaliers were in town just to see Kevin Love move freely. He scored 23 points in 18 minutes. He reached double figures just five minutes into the game. That's what happens when LeBron doesn't play and hog the ball, I thought. I'll tell you what, I think LeBron has been, uh, you know, obviously pretty moody the last few weeks, but he's got to be disappointed that these, these games he's sitting out, that Love and Kyrie aren't doing enough to win. I mean, there was the loss against the Pacers last night and the loss against the Rockets, uh, you know, two weeks ago, where they just, ha- they just had that game, and Love and Kyrie couldn't close, and last night Love and Kyrie couldn't take down Paul George. And, uh, you know, I think LeBron's sitting out hoping he sees something out of his guys, and they they're showing they really need him still. That's the thing with really two all stars plus a, a decent cast of other players. You would think if you're the top team in the East, you can handle Houston, who's not a playoff team. The Pacers, right. who are narrowly a playoff team. That's what I'm thinking. If I'm LeBron, come on, guys, you, you you should surely be able to handle your business without me on these nights. And they're one and four this season without him. Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving should be enough to beat most people in the league, and they have a good supporting cast. They, they just haven't clicked. The chemistry's not there. They haven't found a way to win together. They're very good on paper, um, but in terms of an actual unit, they've been pretty meh. So I do want to circle back to something you used to do. You mentioned it earlier in the conversation, the weekly power rankings. Did you enjoy that? Because I'll admit, before you get into it, it's one of those things where I kind of skip through them. Like, I'll just see where, just to keep tabs on where national guys think the Pacers are in the fold. Right. But I just feel like those would be so annoying to write. Well, the fact that it's past <laughs> tense probably gives you a pretty good idea of uh, <laughs> something you want to move on from. Yes. It's, it's, it's grueling. The, the NBA season is long, and it, you're right. That is how people read them. And, you know, you want to write something interesting about each team every week, and it's really hard to come through with that. And, uh, you know, the one thing it does gives you, it gives you all-encompassing knowledge of the league. You know, when yeah. you read every team's game notes for the week or try and watch a little bit of each team every week, you become completely, uh, you know, knowledgeable on any subject. It would always be fun to do radio interviews then because it was like a test. It was like, yeah, ask me about anyone or anything I've got a number for you. And I've kind of done that today. (laughs) So that's pretty fun. But, uh, yeah, this time of the year, I really do not miss it. Uh, And the other part about it is is that the blurbs don't really matter. It's really just that number next to the team. That's all anyone cares about. That's all the fans are immediately going to react one way or the other. And that, that's the one thing I think organizations like is it's a reactive piece. No, you have them way too high. Or, oh, look, let me brag and retweet the hell out of this because they have my team this high. Right. You, you learn to, to dread some fan bases. Uh, who's, the Grizzlies who's the worst? in particular. That's a, rabid, that's a rabid fan base. The Spurs, definitely. Huh, the Grizzlies. 
Oh, yeah. Do not mess with Grizzlies fans. I, I, they will track down every word you write about them. I would have figured LeBron fans, not Cavs, no LeBron fans. The LeBron fans are always upset. Doesn't change. Doesn't matter what the piece is. <laughs> so you can just never please them. I That's will say right. in the power rankings, you, there is always at least one or two nuggets that is nice to know and, and have in your knowledge bank. That's one thing I do appreciate from all the power rankings. And as you said, you have to have a great feel for the league when you're doing it. It has, gives me a great appreciation for a guy I really respect in Zach Lowe, for instance, who he can talk about a team's pick and roll scheme, and that could be any team in the league. Yeah, that that's a new le- that's another level of just insaneness, insanity. <laughs> where I can't match that. That's that's unbelievable. The amount of basketball he must watch is, is just mind boggling. Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time here today. Might have to become a, a regular segment. Really enjoyed our chat. Hey, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, you know, talking NBA and Pacers comes pretty naturally to me. So uh, give me a holler whenever. I'm always down. And now it's time for my shout-outs for this week. First of all, it's got to begin with the Pacers and the crew at Bankers Life Fieldhouse. They just completed an incredibly difficult but rewarding stretch. Over the last 54 days, they hosted 43 events, including 15 title games, which is notable. You had the Big Ten Women's Tournament. Big Ten Men's Basketball Tournament, and then the NCAA Women's Final Four, plus several Pacer games, all the high school state finals games, and much more at the Fieldhouse, and a couple concerts mixed in. What a stretch for them, and nearly 455,000 fans came through Bankers Life Fieldhouse, and they did a whale of a job. Outstanding work for the Pacers, and I saw firsthand behind the scenes when I was leaving, say, after the women's Final Four. There's a crew of a couple dozen in there working so hard to change out the court, to move the signs out, rip down some signage, clear out the carpets and all the confetti that came down. These guys busted their ass, and they deserve a lot of credit for not only hosting these events, but doing so well. I didn't hear any complaints over the last 43 days during this incredible stretch. I can't imagine what some of those people especially the facilities people just went through. And also George Hill. He's one of five finalists for the J. Walter Kennedy Award. It's voted on by members of the Professional Basketball Writers Association, which I am a part of. This award is presented annually since 1974-75 season to a player, coach, or athletic trainer who shows outstanding service and dedication to the community. And I wrote about this on VigilantSports.com, but I'll reiterate it here. I, a couple years ago before the season, talking with the George uh, training camp, I said, hey, George, what are some of your individual goals that you're looking to get accomplished during this regular season? He said, I don't have any individual goals. Just want to win. Now, you got to stay after George Hill. So I further pressed him on the issue. And he said, you know what? I want to win the NBA's Community Assist Award. Wow. Think about that. That's telling. And George doesn't say it just to say it. He truly enjoys being the hometown hero and giving back to the place that has meant so much to him and also just showing those that grew up in similar circumstances that they too can make it out, that they too can be successful. It doesn't have to be a person trying to make the NBA, but they can master whatever they want if they continue to work at it. But George Hill is a finalist for this J. Walter Kennedy Award, along with Wayne Ellington of Brooklyn, LeBron James, Chris Paul the Clippers, John Wall of the Washington Wizards. All that and more can be read anytime at Vigilant Sports. Thanks again for listening to the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, leave a review, and tell your friends. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.